As we come back together, we continue our study through uh, relationships. We've, we've structured this around the fundamental uh, truth in Scripture that we were created in relationship because God exists in relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit create humanity, male and female, to be in relationship with one another and to be in relationship with Him. And all that is encouraged and constructed around relationship starts with that fundamental understanding that God delights to be in relationship, a mutually self-giving, mutually uh, reflective and engaged and loving and serving relationship. And so trying to understand then the various ways in which humans then interact comes in the context of understanding the practical nature of what it is that God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we have uh, looked a little bit at how that then creates an opportunity for us to relate as human beings. And that starts with a basic understanding that since we live in community, we are called to serve one another in a community working for one another's good. And we looked at the famous passages in Jeremiah where we were encouraged to, even in times of being taken from our own nation, if you will, in in very difficult times, in times of wilderness, when Israel has been exported uh, into the land of Babylon, exiled, They're still called to work for the good of the city, to embrace the basic realities of working for its good, building homes. And in fact, we talked about how it was a fulfillment, a renewal, again, of the promises of what it means to be in the promised land. If you're not in the promised land, if you're not living in a land where I give you houses that you didn't build and you drink from vineyards that you didn't plant, if you're not in that situation, guess what? You have an opportunity to bring kingdom wherever you are. So build houses where you are. Plant vineyards where you are. Do the work of the kingdom because the kingdom is about humanity. Being in relationship with one another. Mirroring, reflecting the nature of God's self-giving revelation of his nature and his character. We looked last week at marriage and Steve helped us unpack the idea that marriage is a spiritual and a physical and a multiplying relationship, right? Uh, And that, again, is very much in line with the nature of the Trinity. We start with God the Father. Is there any way that God can be a father without having children? Is it any wonder, then, that the second person of the Trinity is described as the Son? There is a way in which God is trying to describe His love as being one that creates new aspects of His love. Not commanded, not expected, but it is a natural outworking of who God is as love to reproduce. But it's never just about reproduction. It's about engagement and relationship. So how is it that I'm engaged with my spouse spiritually, emotionally, and physically in the ways in which we live and encourage one another to grow? How amazing it is that Jesus in his humility as a second person of the Trinity when he comes into the world goes through suffering and then the amazing words in Hebrews and he learned through what he suffered. And so the Father and and the Spirit take the Son through a process of learning what it is to be like the Father and what it is to be a Redeemer and a Messiah. 
Did he somewhat know that from all eternity? Sure, but there is a purposeful reason that Scripture says Jesus learned through what he suffered. And we can't dismiss that as just fun boilerplate to make it seem like Jesus was kind of like us. He embraced the fullness of humanity without sin and yet the fullness of humanity. And he learned. And so marriage can't be, and of course we'll talk about parenting relationships later, anything other than a relationship which is spiritually nourishing, encouraging of our spouse to grow, and as God blesses, one that pours out love onto others, children and friends and extension. And so marriage has this rich blessing of reflecting the reality of the Trinity and being a reproducing relationship and a nurturing and a growing relationship. And now it seem, uh, may seem a little odd to then talk about the government, which usually makes us feel like it's anything but a nourishing relationship, but it exists nonetheless. And so this morning we will look first at Romans chapter 12, and then forgive me, I gave uh, the wrong Peter to uh, Laura. It's First Peter. Uh, Second Peter is an odd text to be sure and not directly related to, uh, in fact, I haven't preached Second Peter 2, uh, that might be an interesting challenge. Second Peter 2, uh, 13 and 17. But don't look at that now. Yeah, right. <laughs> don't think about pink elephants. Um, we'll be looking at First Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, which will seem a little bit more on point than Second Peter. But let me put the text in front of us, and then uh, we will dive in. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Hear now God's word. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the, uh, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you, uh, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain." For he is the servant of God and an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjugation, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For, before, uh, uh, but for because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to everything. Pay all that is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And then jumping ahead to 1 Peter chapter 2, reading verses 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. 
Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask again that as we desire to understand what can be teaching that feels rather difficult in any day or age, we pray, Lord, that we might be reminded of what it is to serve under the loving lordship of a king eternal. We ask, Lord, that you would give us wisdom as we look into your word in relationship to how we interact with those that are in authority over us under your authority. And we pray, Lord, that whatever is said this morning that is not useful or true for the building up of your people, that those words would quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. Now, in certain regards, uh, we could talk about uh, historical interactions between church and state, and those could be really fun and likely also create a challenge because some of us might feel like we need to defend certain actions and we don't remember the times and it's all complicated. So on the one hand, discussing church and state relationships is like shooting fish in a barrel, uh, but it's also like shooting fish in a barrel and the barrel is filled with gasoline. So if you do actually discharge it, the whole thing goes up in flames and we all end up uh, very excited. Um, I want to avoid as much as possible this being about anything other than the positive opportunity for the people of God to be salt and light and to deal with in a level of peace and confidence in the gospel with those that are in authority over us, that God, for whatever reason, has institutionally or governmentally placed in authority over his people. What Paul and Peter both seem to believe is there is great reason for hope, not dependent upon the quality and ethics and morals of the government, but because of the quality and morals and ethics of God's people. The opportunity to be salt and light and to either encourage a government in its righteous act or to in one way or another be, even if it means as martyrs, a witness to the evil of a particular government is an opportunity for God's faithfulness to go forward. That our interaction with the state, whatever state that may be, whether it is the state in which the early church lived, where we just said pay homage to the emperor, which clearly didn't mean bowing the knee because that's regularly discouraged. We're willing to go into, or at least some, three or four of them. Well, well, there was three, and then there was four, right, in the furnace. So clearly, Peter isn't suggesting that honoring the emperor means that the people who didn't bother to kneel down to the golden idol in Daniel were somehow religious nutballs who should have just bent the knee and been fine. Clearly, we have to understand both Paul and Peter's writings to be in the context of an unapologetic embracing of the ethics of the kingdom of God and the expectation then that those that God puts in authority over us will at any given moment both encourage those righteous acts and if they should discourage those righteous acts, that even that is for the glory of God and the good of his people. 
And so this morning, I want us to look first uh, at the purpose in the context of containing sin, and then the context of having no fear of evil in verses 3 and 5, particularly in Romans. We'll also jump a couple of places around in Romans because, of course, we don't get to chapter 13 without having 12 chapters ahead of it. And Paul has already laid a lot of the groundwork for what it means to have the confidence and the ability as individuals and the people of God to interact with the state the way he describes it in chapter 13. And so we'll, we'll jump around a little bit in Romans, uh, but I'll try and give you fair warning as we do. God's purpose is to, of course, uh, constrain sin. In the context here, the administration of earthly governments is in no small way to address the problem of human selfishness and sin. And so the challenge that we see, interestingly enough, uh, in Genesis is that human beings deciding what is good for themselves without any administration of state works out rather poorly. It works out poorly for Abel. Uh, in its own way, it works out uh, for Cain's lineage in rather destructive ways. And so there is an understanding that God desires earthly authorities to be a constraint upon the human tendency towards self-absorption. Uh, and I can rationalize literally anything as being justified if it covers one of my needs. And I know that if, if most of us are honest at any given moment, and certainly if we look at human history, most of human, humanity can at any given moment rationalize just about anything to keep themselves alive or fed. In fact, Scripture even warns about poverty. Lord, protect me from becoming poor lest I steal. God is not unaware of, nor unsympathetic to the human condition of sin. And it would be a rather caring, uncaring divine being to not give us some means of constraining the brokenness and evil in this world. Even though he knows, because we're humans fallen in our current state, that somebody's likely to abuse that power. The Bible's answer to the problem of the abuse of power is not to remove power but to refocus it through the lens of love. To refocus it through the lens of who God is. And that inevitably means more service and care than it does the administration of brute force over the weak. And so what we have here in verses 1, and 1 through 4 is an understanding that uh, governments have the responsibility to restrain evil. And even really bad governments can still do a fairly decent job of protecting their citizenry against theft from other citizens. It can protect against certain levels of murder and abuse within that society to constrain vengeful acts. Most civil societies have certain guards against certain random acts of violence. And in fact, the more structured uh, a state is, the longer life expectancy somebody has and the less likely they are to be killed in clan or uh, various gang violence, right? And so to the degree that those things are increased, 
there is relatively increased safety and longevity for a culture. And the more uh, that there is a lack of governmental structure or authority, the increase in those societies of early death because of vengeance or uh, long-running feuds or fill-in-the-blank increases. It restrains evil. Even authoritarian governments restrain evil. In fact, what we call it is the Pax Romana, right? There is a reality that at the moment that they are writing this, they are enjoying a period of unparalleled peace, which many historians impacted by the gospel will say, it is amazing. God gives a period for the spread of the gospel during the height of the Roman Empire when because Rome loved money, they built roads and kept those roads safe so that St. Paul could travel those roads and bring the gospel. It was a time of unparalleled peace and prosperity in human history, even though it was under the heel of one of the most brutal empires ever to rule that part of the world. They crucified people very well. One of the arguments that, the, that Jesus really died is if the Romans knew how to do anything, they knew how to kill people, and pretty sure that Jesus wouldn't have slipped off the cross just a little bit unconscious. Romans knew how to kill people, and they knew how to kill them in very important ways to dissuade people from standing against the Roman Empire. It was an oppressive government. Very soon, under Nero, who Paul wrote the letter to the Romans probably during Nero's reign, Nero would use Christians as tiki torches for evening soirees. And in the context of that, Paul is still saying, submit to those in authority. There is still a restraining of evil. Now, the nice thing is, and the scholars tell us this, is that when we live in an authoritarian government, there isn't a whole lot for Christians to know about the inner workings of the government. We're just called to live out the ethics of the kingdom of God, which the church did. Since we have no hope of being in authority, since we have no hope of power, what do we do? Well, we live in community, and we care for one another, and we care for our neighbor. And one of the interesting things that happens that bears this out is that initially Christians were persecuted. It was not uncommon for emperors to blame us for a particular problem in a region, and then there would be a program, there would be an uh, oppression of Christians. But increasingly, that becomes more and more difficult because Christians become the safety net for that town. And so what historians and sociologists tell us is that as Christianity grows in the first three centuries, one of the motivations uh, for protecting Christians within a community was the fact that when the plagues had come through or when a, a famine had come through, it was the generosity and love of Christians for their pagan neighbors acting out the kingdom ethic that began to create a lack of support within the people for the abuse of Christians so that it became a less popular way to address social problems. It wasn't a place you could hang a problem anymore. You couldn't blame the Christians because the people in the town are going, but they care for us. And so what the early church did in following Paul's recommendation is we never picked up a sword. 
We never marched. We never did certain things that we now think of as being the right way to respond to authoritarian governments. What God's people did was they lived out the kingdom ethic, and even as they suffered in the midst of it, they submitted in those areas which were not contrary to the ethics of God, and as they lived out the kingdom ethics, it became less and less tolerable for evil to do evil to them. That the state itself was reformed because the nation itself, all of the empire began to see that for the most part, Christians brought life and health and sustaining balance and peace to their neighborhoods. And that it seemed rather silly to be hurting the people who helped us. And in so doing, in submitting to an authoritarian government and yet living the ethics of the kingdom of God in 300, uh, 300 and change years, the state was tempted, and sadly so was the church, to incorporate the church into the state. And it became now a means of asserting power, which has certain upsides, but my stars does it have dangers. And that's where we get to the description of democracy. And if you look on the front of your uh, worship folder, which I apparently have buried, uh, I, wanna, I want you to look at that, that middle quote, which is uh, from this amazing commentary by Cranfield on uh, Romans uh, and on this section. And this is his uh, unpacking of the change. So the text is originally written to people living in authoritarian governments. Folks in China and perhaps in the, the 1040 window or whatever it's called should, can read Romans the way it was written. Since we are in an oppressive society, here's how we interact. But there's a challenge then, of course, when, when we get democracy. What, what happens to Paul's uh, encouragement? Here is uh, a scholar, uh, well-respected input. The proper exposition of Paul's words involves, uh, for the Christian living in a democracy, the translation of them into terms of a different political order. Such a Christian can and therefore must do much more for the maintenance of the state as a just state. So the challenge is that when you're in an oppressive government, all you really have to do is live out the kingdom, and you don't have to understand economic theory, and you don't have to understand the implications of housing and zoning laws, and you don't have to understand a ton of stuff because you have no power. But my stars, when we begin to have power and responsibility, and that is shared, then the understanding and the implications of what our decisions mean for those who may have less of a vote or no vote at all becomes far more important. And uh, so he says this understanding, the Greek word here uh, means to be under submission. It's the word used in uh, verse 1, and the, uh, this this. Understanding of being hupo, which is a preface that means under, under authority, under status, uh, will include voting in parliamentary elections, Cranfield was English, uh, responsibility in the fear of Christ and in love to his neighbor, right? And since such responsibility of voting is only possible in the basis of adequate knowledge, making sure that he or she now is uh, as fully and reliably informed as possible about political issues striving tirelessly in the ways 
constitutionally open to them to support just policies and to oppose the unjust. The challenge then becomes we have to understand the implications of what it means to have more or less government interaction and regulation, whether that is regulating uh, businesses and how they discharge the uh, by-processes, uh, the byproducts of their manufacturing, right? Is it necessarily a bad idea to have Christians informed enough about what happens so that, again, the good news is the Cuyahoga River doesn't get lit on fire? But is it unjust for us to imagine that in a state where we have a vote, our ability to understand what happens when you dump certain chemicals into the water system and how that may affect others might be a part of what it is to be actually in submission to one another and love for my neighbor. It becomes now my responsibility. It becomes my privilege and my pleasure to enact and to hope for the best for my neighbor so that the poor are not the only ones limited to living around those that are more industrial or more dangerous areas of town but that because I hold Christian values and I advocate for the kingdom of God, that not having it in my neighborhood may not be a sufficient answer because my neighbors aren't just the people who live in my economically somewhat segregated neighborhood because you have to have enough cash to buy a house where I live. That my definition of neighbor becomes bigger and my calling, I can't now blame the state anymore. I can't blame an authoritarian government and go, well, it's nothing I can do. Nero said that that's where the water treatment plant's going to go and I'm sorry that's where those people live, but Nero said so. Tragically, or yet hopefully, in a democracy, what it means to apply Romans chapter 12 and 1 Peter 2 is that I now have the opportunity to make sure that what happens is just and that those who have less of a voice and those who are impoverished are not the ones who regularly find themselves more likely to be in danger physically or in mentally or educationally than those who are better off. Because I can advocate through the means of my own government for justice and for care for those who don't have a vote. I'm no longer able to not understand uh, immigration policy and the difference between refugee status and crossing various lines. I, if I'm going to advocate for a policy, I have to understand its implications, not just in a kingdom state, but in an international state. I'm, I'm no longer allowed to not know. And so as much as it is wearying, and it is wearying, to hear the challenges that any country faces, right? What my son reports to me about in Honduras is e even though it's a smaller country, could be equally overwhelming and depressing as it is sometimes to hear about the political infighting that happens in our nation. There is no place where the state is just a blissful existence where my ignorance is encouraged and blessed. We're called to engage. If we have the ability to set the tone for a government as to what is evil and what is just, then what Cranfield is saying is we have that responsibility under the lordship of Christ 
to do so wisely in an informed fashion. So what does that look like for Little Newburgh? I would suggest that as we wrestle with housing, some of that is going to be, if we're in a situation where we're trying to understand what it means to put different kinds of housing in different kinds of neighborhoods, might there be a different response from Christians relating to the priorities of the kingdom versus the priorities, at least in the short term, of the perception that I might lose value in my house. Now, we can do research that shows that very rarely do you see a decrease in the value of a house simply because you put duplexes in the same neighborhood. It usually doesn't happen. Does it sometimes? Sure. But then we have to ask ourselves, does the Bible suggest that the maximization of profit over the needs of those for housing is a justifiable way to determine housing policy. And you're going, EC, you're about to get into something really complicated and we all might have opinions. Yes, but here's, the, here's my point. Not that you agree with me, but that we have to have that discussion. That what it means to submit to one another and what it means to embrace the idea of mutual submission is the reality in a, in a democracy, in a uh, government where we, the people, vote, that we now become responsible for its ethics and its justice and for the implications of policies which may be unintended. Following the kingdom ethics comes in the context, and I need to give you just a couple of scriptural references from Romans, is that we no longer fear evil. Because when we do good, we know we stand in line with the eternal king. And we have no fear of eternal justice. And because we are no longer functioning under a short-term basis of the next 5, 10, 50, or 70 years, however long we expect to live this side of glory, or should the Lord return, how can we live this way? How can we live sometimes to the detriment of our own economic or personal safety. Well, first of all, we're called in chapter 12, just one chapter back, to do what? This is all fun and games if it just means show up to church occasionally, but what if it actually means something more substantive, right? I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and accepting to God, which is spiritual worship. What if that means sometimes I lay down the things that are most important to me that I'm afraid of losing that in the care for the other may mean I give myself as a living sacrifice. That may be my pocketbook. That may be my time. That may be and is not uncommonly true in the history of the church, even my life for the other. What does it mean for Paul to unpack in chapter 13, living under the state, and to live not in fear of the state, even in an oppressive state, because Paul's already set up the context, I encourage you, brothers and sisters, to lay down your lives as living sacrifices, holy and just and pleasing to our God and Savior. Do not be conformed to this world, but transformed through the renewing of your mind 
that by testing you may discern what the will of God is and what is good and acceptable and perfect. The world tells you that to act contrary to your own economic or physical health interests is foolishness because you only get 80 years here. And even if you believe in a spiritual world, which is nice and fluffy and cloudy, it's still going to be kind of boring, right? I mean, most heaven just sounds painfully boring. So if I don't have a really vigorous understanding of the renewal of creation and the fact that if I don't get to those amazing islands off the coast of Vietnam that you see in like James Bond movie, if I don't get there in my first 80 years, I have eternity to go see them. They're not disappearing in the renewal of the new heavens and the new earth. I don't have to get there in the next 40 years. Please, not much more than 40 years. Um, so if, if, I, if I can wait, why? So I don't have to do it now. I don't have to steal that. I have an eternal set of criterion that allows me to project what I might delight and enjoy in for eternity, which is no less than resting in the presence of God and worshiping Him daily and feeling and knowing His presence and seeing Him physically. But that's not all. Like Adam and Eve, the garden will be open to us again that we might go out and work and delight and be His image bearers creating. So I no longer have to worry about whether or not I get it all done this time around. But I can delight and, and work not conform to the world's notion, but to the eternal notion that I can delay my gratification for the sake of the other. That delayed gratification is a rich and freeing way to live. The tyranny of time where I only have so much time and in creating a government which embraces the tyranny of time and the immediacy of my own gratification and happiness might not be the most beneficial for the kingdom training of my mind and heart. But instead, the structure starting with chapter 12, I appeal therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as living sacrifice. But isn't just there. I want to jump real quick to Romans 6. Uh, again, Paul builds his argument so carefully and uh, so wonderfully. Uh, I'll read this and then I think we're pretty close to, oh my stars, time. Uh, moving on. All right, so 6, right? 6 is dead to sin, alive in God is the heading we often see in our scriptures, right? What does Paul say? For if we have been united with him in his death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Right? Living sacrifices, not conformed to the way of the world, 12. Here we're being told how that happened. We died to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. 
We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. For once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So that you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That will undermine every evil form of government the world can come up with. The notion that we are not revolutionary people is false. We undermine the very means by which the world uses power to manipulate the many into oppressing the few and maintaining and maximizing pleasure. When we understand the nature of our resurrected self in Christ, the radical statements of Jesus, which did in the end undermine the Roman Empire and has undermined one evil empire after another, will undermine any evil democracy. Because the ethics and the life of God create citizenry which can both love and submit to those who use authority poorly, and in that very act, undermine the power that the world would seek to leverage over us. And in so doing, presenting an opportunity for life and light to all who see, becoming salt and light again. That is the calling of the church in relationship to the state, to be salt and light in the sure knowledge that we have been made alive by the king himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be merciful to the preaching of your word. We do, Lord, ask that in the small ways in which we live within our community, we might know the ethics, the quality of the kingdom. Lord, that we might, might live out well together what it is to both submit well to those that you have placed in authority over, yet, Lord, to undermine any, any use of power.